Welcome to Ramble City. Yeah, I think the generally speaking, the more life experience you you have is an advantage when it comes to writing about art, mm. because art is about all of the nuances and complexities and heartbreaks of life as well. If you haven't experienced some of those for yourself, then your worldview and your ability to interpret some of what you're listening to is is going to uh, perhaps not be as rounded as it might otherwise be. Having said that, um, I think it's probably important to say at this juncture that one of the great things about music, this is a point that I make in the book, is that great music will always be what do you love about music? What are your favourite records? And have you ever felt like a song has actually saved your life? Hello, Bradley McCaw here. Welcome to the show. For Andrew Stafford, today's guest, music did just that. And in his words, because those who can't play music review it, he's carved out a career writing about music instead of playing it. He's a freelance journalist and the author of Pig City, a celebrated musical and political history of Brisbane. He's written for The Age, The Guardian, The Sydney Morning Herald, among others. And in 2019, we sat down in his Brisbane home, surrounded by a pretty incredible record collection to talk about about his second book, a beautiful and incredibly moving memoir called Something to Believe in. In our chat, we cover what makes a great song, some of our favourite records, uh, another classic book and film, High Fidelity by Nick Hornsby, which we kind of dig into. And we start by me asking him to describe his very intimidating record collection, don't forget to follow me everywhere at Bradley McCaw Official and why not join our mailing list at bradleymccaw.com.au for updates and new episodes. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and do us a solid. Leave us a review. Five stars, six stars, seven stars, however many stars they'll let you give us. Go on, you know you want to. But that's enough from me, so let's get to this week's episode. I'm Bradley McCaw and this is Ramble City. Welcome to Ramble City. We're currently sitting at uh, a wooden table uh, and surrounded by a very well-kept collection of records, more records than, than I have, and I'm... Well, I'm more intimidated than, than I expected to be by by the collection. Um, Andrew, can you please give us a breakdown of what I'm looking at here? This is... Well, in front of you, uh, we have the international collection of uh, records. Oh, the deluxes. No, no, not the deluxe. That would, that's not the wrong deluxe, classification. No, but uh, no, I, I have things separated regionally. So there are three cabinets. In front of you is the international collection. So is, that's behind Andrew for when you're listening. It's in front of me behind Andrew. That's, that's right. right. Uh, in front of me yes. uh, is the half-sized Australian collection, which is still reasonably significant. And to my right, there is a third and smaller cabinet, which is entirely composed of Brisbane artefacts, the Pig City Shelf, if you will. Oh, wow. That is... And so are these, which is uh, it's, it's it's all a bit meta, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and also too, it's uh, it's just really good looking. Well, 
you know, it's just IKEA furniture at the end of the day, so it's certainly not oh, no, but expensive. But it's what you do but, with uh, it. It's what you do with it, Andrew. Because yeah, yeah. behind you, we've got Fleetwood Mac's rumors. We've got there's Elvis Elvis Costello, Paul Kelly's looking at us. Uh, a dinosaur is uh, attacking us from the cover of the Hoodoo Gurus. I can just see a go-betweens anthology just in front of your glasses to your right. What is was kind of in front of me? Mm-hmm. It's it's a collection uh, that must have been you know put together over so many years it's it's to me the geek in me goes this is beautiful you yeah, know like it's it's taken a long it's taken a long time to to build up i have slowed down in recent years because for one thing there's as you can see not a lot of space in these cabinets and there's not a lot of room left in this flat for more cabinets so and let's be so honest. that's a bit of a problem and also uh, it's an expensive hobby uh so <laughs> there are <laughs> Who wants to go back to IKEA? Limitations. You know, to get more, more. Oh, that's you know. right. That's a nightmare in itself. But yeah, you know, uh, there are limitations on these things. Do you have then? Uh, would you be willing to share with us? Perhaps is is a better way of asking the question of maybe then the breakdown within within the each international, uh, national, and then local because the thing. The, the the geek in me, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but the, the music fan in me loves to itemise things. I love to, to, to uh, you know, order them in some way that means something to me. But then even more than that, I love to hear how other people do it. It's such a joy to sort of to hear about it. Well, when you have a couple of thousand records, and that's a very rough guesstimate, I've certainly seen and heard of far, far bigger collections than this one. But when you have... When you have a collection of, of uh, any reasonable size, you're going to need some kind of filing system because otherwise you're not going to find anything. Yeah. <laughs> or, you, or you'd be looking for a long time. Maybe yeah. if everything was randomised, then uh, there'd be um, a pleasurably random element in what you happen to land on on any given day <laughs> yeah, yeah. to play. But uh, no, I've, you know, most collectors have um, fairly organised brains you know yeah. brains like filing cabinets and so you know my organizational principle is both simple and uh, uh, and complicated at the same time um, it's firstly it's alphabetical okay and then it's chronological okay. so we okay. go alphabetized by artist and okay. then chronological within artist okay in order of release Things do get complicated when it comes to things like live releases as opposed to studio releases. Yeah. It's a particular nightmare with supergroups, <laughs> you know, where you have yeah. members of several different established bands all playing together. So where are your travelling Wilburys? I, you know, actually, that's a gap. I do not have the travelling Wilburys, but that would be, you know, that would be a classic example and Where also, would you put it? and also, you've managed to embarrass me within the first few minutes of this interview. <laughs> so, so I do need to get uh, the travelling Wilburys. Where would I put it? Look, that's a bloody good question. Yeah, maybe that's why I haven't got it because it's just too hard to <laughs> even decide. Yeah. I remember I uh, I found a copy once. Um, so I probably have to put it under under T. Under T. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you've got oh my god, well, when you've got uh, you know. Do you choose? Does it go after the Beatles for George Harrison, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan? Yeah, look, it's just not going to work. No, uh, it, it it would need its own. They 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 would need their own separate filing under T. 
and their own cabinet with just what, like one record on it, it's one greatest hits record. Well, we can't go that far, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. As I said, there are limits, uh, but that's the basic principle, alphabetical and chronological. Okay, well, as uh, a music fan talking to another music fan, I'm going to try not to stick too much around those sort of topics because this would be a podcast that would just be listened to by me yes. uh, enjoying, you know, yes, back our conversation. Of, a couple of geeks. <laughs> So I thought that I wanted to start off by asking you, there's a, there's a, a quote um, in, in the book uh, that you found, I think it was 2001, it was in a Lebanese diner and it was, uh, I think, behind the register, I believe, I'm sure you'll, you'll correct or, or sort of, you know, fill it out for us. But the quote was, music brings to the soul a variable inward culture and is part of the education of a people. Yeah. I thought that was a really beautiful place to start. What do you, what, what does that quote mean to you then, now? A variable inward culture to me suggests the emotional states that arise from listening to music, the way that it moves us. And part of the education of a people, well, music is common to all cultures yeah. and has been throughout human history as far as I'm aware, yeah. <laughs> to some degree or other. And it was a particularly important quote for me uh, when I was writing my first book, Pig City, partly because I lived in uh, the suburb where uh, I found that diner. It's still there. Wow. No, no, it's in Red Hill. And I was there just the other day, in fact, <laughs> reliving old I think times. I've been to no no's. Yeah, uh, that, the signage above the counter is, is still there. Wow. Um, it was particularly important when I was writing Pig City because I was living in the area I would visit it daily and the fact the idea of music being central to the education of a people was quite inspiring while writing that book because the general idea behind it was um, I was trying to figure out to what degree growing up in a repressive political climate, which Queensland had been, had affected the output of the um, musicians and artists that had come from here. Yeah. So uh, to that, you know, I figured that uh, many of the uh, artists and the musicians that had come from Brisbane, particularly uh, after the punk era, had indeed changed the outlook of the city and influenced the outlook of its people as well and had indeed contributed to its education. So, for example, take to start with the obvious, a song like I'm Stranded by the Saints, I, it would be hard to think of another song which has um, changed both the internal and external perception yeah. of a city yeah. in the way that that song did. How so? Just for people maybe that don't know this, the, the song very well or might be coming to this with having not read the book. Well, if you haven't heard I'm Stranded by the Saints, uh, you know, before I say a word, you should just, you know, hit pause on the podcast and go and, and go do that. Go and do that. Because then Andrew's going to do a quick karaoke version <laughs> when you get back. Hold on. Here we go. One, two, three, four. Like snake calling on the phone. Yeah. I got no time to be alone. Oh. Something coming at me all the time. Yeah. Yeah, baby, think I'll lose my mind because oh. I'm stranded <laughs> on my own. Surely you know this, right? Oh, you know, my God. If you haven't, you think you haven't heard it, you probably have. Um, and look, in terms of both, well, let's start with the internal perception of the city. I think 
there was a prevailing idea in Brisbane that art, particularly music, uh, there wasn't... I mean, I'm going to get myself into trouble saying something I know, like it's this always this fine line to walk, I know. It's a fine line to walk. There were bands like the Bee Gees. There were bands like uh, who, you know, blew through here in five minutes before yeah, they got right. out again. They which, started their performing careers here, but not their recording careers, which is a different matter. And a distinction that's important from my point of view as well, but never. Same thing with Billy Thorpe started here as a performer when he was a kid. Yeah. Um, going a bit later, you had R&B groups like the Purple Hearts, who were fantastic, but didn't leave much behind in yep. the way of a recorded legacy yep. in the way that 60s pop groups like um, the Easy Beats did, for example, or yeah. the Masters Apprentices, yep. other great Australian garage bands. Yeah, And then in the early 70s, there was Railroad Gin as well. None of those, none of those groups, with all due respect to them, left the kind of legacy that the Saints did. In the mid seventies yeah. and beyond, in terms of actually creating a scene and leaving it behind that people built on, yeah, that right. was huge. Yeah. The other thing that was huge was that they went overseas very quickly because there was no audience for them here. They probably had a core audience of a couple of hundred people at most in Brisbane. Still and, the Saints, you mean? Yeah, yeah. And in Australia, you know, the, the market for them was simply too small. They were not wanted here. Yeah, they sent. Their first single, uh, which was I'm Stranded, uh, independently made entirely. Wow. Um, I've got a copy over there. It's very rare. Um, they, uh, sent it, they sent it overseas. They sent it all over the world. And this review appeared in Sounds Magazine, a British weekly that declared it the single of this and every week and blabbered about it, yeah. saying how great it was. If you wanted to get a copy, if you were living in England, you needed to send X amount of, uh, you know, pence, pence <laughs> to an address in Lawson Street, Oxley, which is right in the corner of where Ed Cooper Park is now. Wow. So that was a big thing yeah. in itself. Suddenly Brisbane was on the map mm. externally in terms of this was a place where really genuinely cutting-edge music was coming from because this was... This was before the first single by The Damned, let alone the first single Anarchy in the UK by The Sex Pistols. Wow. And internally as well, you know, there was this kind of cultural cringe factor as well, you know, where it was like we couldn't believe that suddenly music that was coming out of here was being talked about overseas as well, yeah. which Australians have always craved. I immediately want to ask you then how then that quote then related to you then when you came back and put it in something to believe in then. Well, I suppose we get back to the idea of the variable inward culture yeah. because this is a much more personal book than Pig City was. Pig City was, uh, you know, I kept myself right out of that one. There was no need for me yeah. to be in that one, so... Could you imagine that if was you much did, more you would have got in more hot water? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, this is a by comparison, something to believe in is a is a music memoir. It's a personal book. Uh, it's much more reflective, and 
Indeed, it's a very, I think, a very intimate book. Yeah. Um, I started writing about music in a much more personal way, um, being completely open to and allowing of the subjectivity of the musical experience. Yeah. And I thought that that was something that people could more easily connect to. But having said that, it wasn't like I was you know, thinking that as I started doing it, it was, it was more, uh, I'd started a Patreon page, which is a subscriber journalism page. And I think perhaps influenced by the fact that I was talking directly to a small pool of people who were fans of my work. Yeah. Already, it was more like I was writing letters. Yeah, wow. So, uh, that was where that voice came from, which was more personal than than any voice that I'd used before and I started to find a memoir thread emerging very quickly. So this was an accident. Yeah. The way the book started was an accident. Which is so interesting to me because I when so the the vulnerability or intimacy or whatever word we sort of want to use it, it to me it jumps straight off the page and it's something that so many people that have read it and that have clearly enjoyed it by what they've said about it. Um it does just jump off the page, you know, and it reaches in and it says to you, you know, here's here's the story about how I came to to write these very words, and it reminded me as I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you about how that's often how a lot of songs themselves are born by this surprise, you know. There's this eternal question: Is a song? Uh, the, the, songs come to us very quickly or, or, or a long drawn out process of kind of meticulously working on every word and you know r- many writers will say oh well I don't know which is better whether it's something that's taken me a year or something that's taken me a you know a minute that I've dreamt and woken up with yesterday in my head you know it's well this book t- took two months to write so it's very quick right it was very quick yes um, and a very intense creative experience which was actually hugely enjoyable once it got hold of me yeah um and that's what it did it did actually get hold of me and wouldn't let go yeah uh that was after i've already mentioned the patreon page i'd mentioned i'd written a few posts on that and i started to see a thread of memoir emerging yeah and when i realized that that was what was happening i sort of started to sketch out a bit of an outline, and then I just blasted through it. I think wow. the first 30,000 30, words came in three weeks. Wow. There was a short break while I was attending to other deadlines and then burned through the next 40,000 in maybe another maybe another five weeks. So, yeah, two, two months all told, and then nine months of editing, but, the, but that first draft was very true to the finished product. I was really, it was really just tidying up from there and trying to... Um, trying to be as economical as I could, but the basic structure remained in place and mo- most of the most of the writing, you know, there wasn't a lot of massaging, put it that way. Yeah. So I, I guess the greater point to be made here was that this is a book that had to be written. It just kind of came out. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of planning attached to it. There wasn't a contract being dangled in me saying, can you do this for us? Yeah. Um, it was... A pretty visceral, creative, and emotional experience to do it. How does that then, to go back to the very first question that led us down to into talking about something to believe in, mm. the variable inward culture? 
that we talked about. What was that then? Was that something you discovered in the same way you discovered the book was being written as you wrote it? You know, is that well? In some ways, the book is about emotional states. It's a very emotional book. Um, anyone that knows me would tell you that I wear my heart pretty openly on my sleeve, and this is a very hard on sleeve book. Um, it is vulnerable. Uh, it talks quite a bit about mental health and mortality. Um, and on the other hand, it's very whimsical because all of these emotional states have a song attached to it and that's kind of how my brain works. I have a song for every occasion. Yeah. And that's how, that's how I walk through the world. I've always got a song in my head. Some would say this might be a problem. <laughs> no, you've got a literal soundtrack to your life, which is that old, you know, that old cliche that we throw in about music. But... Yeah, that's right. And, and when I was writing this book, you know, I was quite careful not to make it too, make it too rock critic, even though on one hand, yes, that's what I am. Although I do do a lot of, I do write a lot of other stuff as well about yeah. other subjects. Mm. But I didn't want to kind of go over, you know, rehashed appraisals of the um, of the canon. Yeah, it was personal and idiosyncratic. You know, there are some things that are from the canon, quote unquote. There, you know, digressions on things like Marquee Moon by Television, which is my favourite record ever. That's that's pretty established. Yeah. But you even pull yourself up a couple of times when you go into that. I I felt there were a couple of times you then went. But this is just a part of me. I'm getting back to the story that I'm wanting to tell you here. Yeah, that's was that, right. Is that a true account of that? Do you think? I think so. Yeah, the songs had to. The songs that I and records that I wrote about had to intersect with the life story to justify a, a place in the telling. It it was so. Um, it was one of the the joys of the book. There was many for me personally in it, but that then when I went and listened to the songs that were that you referenced in the book. And, you know, like to the moon and back, Savage Garden. This mm. is a song that I secretly loved mm -hmm. and that I felt kind and you of... felt you weren't allowed to like? Yes, yes. And I used to remember thinking, God, this is a great pop song. God, this is well written. Mm. Gosh, they did a wonderful job, you know, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and then, you, you know, you referenced in the book and I went back and listened to it. And, um, yeah, it, was, it, it brought me a lot of joy to be able to have that experience beyond the book as well. Well, pop music should be a joy. Music should be a joy, regardless of whether it's R&B or hip-hop or rock and roll or punk or classical or what or cabaret or show tunes or whatever your thing is. It yep. should bring joy. Yep. Of course, uh, it has a darker side as well as human beings do. Yeah. And so I like a lot of music that's quite, you know, really dark too. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it should be elevating you lifting you up in in some way and you know i've got a i've got a phrase in the book where i say you know to me there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure what you like is just what you like and um and the story about savage garden in the book when i was sent somewhat against my will but a gig's a gig to interview them by rolling stone australia magazine in the late 90s and i was shocked by how much I liked them. These guys were so uncool that they were way cool. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I, I, I realised that they 
you know, a lot of emphasis in rock and roll is put on authenticity. Mm. It's a pretty bogus concept at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, but I figured that these guys weren't bogus, that they were as real as the saints yeah. in their own way. They weren't, the, the, the point is they weren't trying to be anyone else. They were doing what was true to them which was slick commercial pop music, which was what they themselves had grown up with loving. Yeah. And they were damn good at it. Yeah. So, yeah, um, there's there's lots of things that I might consider a bit a bit naff or that other people might consider a bit naff in the, the collection that's in front of us, but, you know, hey... Oh, I'm down with it. Hey, know? this is the intersection of our our collection. I could talk about, you know, one of the things that I was uh, quite keen to talk about in the book was Taylor Swift, particularly her song, um, I Knew You Were Trouble. Yeah. That almost got an entry of its own. I've got a few Taylor Swift records behind me there. She's fantastic. Fantastic. Great, great writer. Oh, More than anything. I, I, yeah. I, I, I've sort of started to... I've fallen off the bandwagon with the latest release, I must confess, but the, but the last... Um, uh, 1989 in particular, it's just a fantastic pop record. Yeah. And I grew up in the 80s, you know. There were a lot of great pop records at that time where, you, where the aim was to for every song to be a single. Yeah. And there were a few records around where the majority of songs that were peeled off, say, for example, Born in the USA by Springsteen. I think seven out of the ten songs on that record were peeled off as singles. Um, rumors behind us. Yeah, I think half of that. That's a seventies record, seventy-seven. Um, Thriller by Michael Jackson, of course. Um, yes, we know that uh, Michael Jackson's reputation is uh, not so great uh, at the for, for very good reasons at the moment. Well, it all depends on where people land on that, and let's not get into same, that because I'm not sure all about that. But at the same time, you know, the th- it's it's pretty hard to cancel Thriller. <laughs> it's. <laughs> <laughs> 80 million sales later, it's it's out there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it probably won't of, go away. It's not going to go away, no. Uh, so what makes a great song for you, do you think? Uh, that's a, such a broad question and a bit of a cliche question, but what, what is it for you, do you think? Good writing yeah. um, and an original voice. And what I mean by an original voice isn't necessarily a voice that's technically correct yeah. in any way, but one that you will recognise straight away. Yeah. Um, Rock and roll in particular has never been about technical mastery, yeah. whether it's great, you know, whether it's great singing or great instrumental prowess. In fact, as, as soon as you start getting into that territory, you're probably missing the point, which doesn't mean that many of the greats to have played pop or rock and roll don't have great chops. It's how you use it, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, you know, but I guess what, what I'm getting at there is that um, it doesn't matter whether it's the Jimi Hendrix experience or the Ramones, you know. Yeah. Technical aptitude is is not uh, not the synchronon of rock and roll, yep. you know. It's, it's about attitude and belief and you can, you can do it whether you only know a couple of chords or whether or not you're a master on your instrument. It's really interesting you've brought this up because going back and listening to Overdose, ACDC, as it's on your playlist, yeah. 
I'd never had the, I'd never sort of crystallized this thought listening to ACDC before until listening to it uh, on the car, in the car. Uh, not on the car. That'd be weird driving down and standing on the car. Um, that's how I drive. You drive how you drive, and I'll drive how I drive. No, I, I was struck by the the force in the playing, but before I'd always just listen to to I guess the aggressiveness in it, if you want to put it like that, or or sort of a bit of, you know, the excitement in the playing. But to me, when that lead kicks in, there is a certainty of to what's playing, and it's so. There's no question about anything other than this is what I'm playing right now and and not only the ideas musically interesting and the playing and, and all that stuff but I, I was really struck by that that I can really see how that would gather an army you know of yeah. people saying I'm going to follow you you total know total commitment yeah. total, total I, commitment in the playing and performance total commitment in the vocals that's what I'm looking for yeah and and of course, you know, in the case of ACDC, it's actually very simple music, yeah. despite, you know, in, in the writing. Yeah. Of course, you know, they were great players. All of them were yeah. great players and Bon Scott was a great singer. Oh. But the songwriting construction is, itself is actually pretty simple. Yeah. Um, and there was a great quote by Lester Bangs, great rock critic from the 70s, that uh, just because something is simpler than something else does not make it worse. In fact, writing something that's really simple is very difficult. Yeah. Writing something that's uh, very simple and connects with a lot of people is extremely difficult. Mm. Um, this was, the, of course, the great uh, lure and uh, mantra of punk that anyone can do it. The uh, corollary that doesn't get stated so often was how few did it really well yeah <laughs> because it's hard it's actually really hard to do that is that do you agree with then is that the same for being a music critic because modern times everyone's a critic at everything now but i mean do you remember when then the word first grabbed you and you went i'm will command thee no i wouldn't say it was anything like that it was something that i fell into being somewhat directionless in my early 20s but being very passionate about music but a lot of bad music writing is like bad rock and roll music in yeah. that it's over complicated yeah. i was trying to you know the the closer i got to finding my own voice which took time i just was trying to write as simply and as plainly and as non-technically as i could I think to be a good music writer, first and foremost, you just need to be a good writer. Yeah. And so I was... I think the thing that I've aspired to do in my writing about music is to write melodically so that there's a kind of... This is going to... At the risk of sounding a bit wanky... Sure. There's a kind of... This is a podcast about art. Come on. There's a kind of poetry in the expression. Yeah. Uh, that there's a a rhythm and a melody to the words themselves. But the worst thing you can do when you're writing about music is to show off. Mm. So I'm not trying to show off. Mm. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to connect. And one way of doing that is to, as I said, uh, be be unafraid. Be unafraid to reveal yourself. Unafraid to show 
show yourself, show what a piece of music means to you. Mm. But also you've got to have enough musical knowledge to be able to put in context where a song is coming from, where an artist is coming from and try to drill down into what a piece of music is trying to say to you. Yeah, and it takes a lot of experience in a lot of fields, doesn't it? Like you're saying, to be able to navigate all those different waters, to be able to know the in how where you know the inspiration of an idea and then what it's like being on the road and then all the different facets of what it makes to make a record and be an artist yeah i think the generally speaking the more life experience you you have is an advantage when it comes to writing about art mm. because art is about all of the nuances and complexities and heartbreaks of life as well yeah if you haven't experienced some of those for yourself, then your worldview and your ability to interpret some of what you're listening to is, is going to uh, perhaps not be as rounded as it might otherwise be. Having said that, um, I think it's probably important to say at this juncture that one of the great things about music, this is a point that I make in the book, is that great music will always wait for you and an example of that is, for me, was Bruce Springsteen, who I didn't get at all when I was younger. Mm. I needed a few more miles on the clock before the, the penny really dropped and yeah. I appreciated what he was about Yeah, uh, and found that he had something to say to me too. What was the song? Downbound was Train, me, which is a song from... Me too. Really? That's me too, yeah. Downbound Train is from Born in the USA. It's actually one of the few songs from that record that wasn't a single. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, Isn't that interesting? Because that was, I was uh, an ex-girlfriend played me that song almost as a test. <laughs> oh, really? And at the time, was that the the time that got you, or the time that you didn't get it? No, this was actually when the penny when she played the song for me, and uh, I was uh, reduced to rubble by halfway through it, and uh, so therefore I, I passed the test. <laughs> <laughs> she was like daring me not to be moved. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I was moved. Yeah. Do you? Uh, Oh, wow, I'm a bit shocked that we had that same song because I had the same experience where, you know, I'd listen to different things. And then Hungry Heart was actually another one that I really liked. Now, Hungry Heart was actually written for the Ramones. Did you know that? Yeah, I, di I did, yeah, but I'd forgotten. But that's a bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> John, John Landau, Springsteen's manager, um, when he heard the song, he was like, that's too good, you're not giving that away. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, it became his first number one hit, so... Interesting to reflect, I suppose, on how history might have been different. Yeah. Let's uh, take a, a little side step to um, to another book that you reference in your in something to believe in. I was so excited to to read about. You bring it up as, as the film, and that was how I first discovered this this property, which was High Fidelity by Nick Hornsby. Um, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, can you give us a really – just quickly give us a quick couple of lines of what that, that, that film and that book is about? Well, the book's essentially set in a record shop in North London, and it concerns you know, the central character whose name is – Rob Fleming, I think, from memory, yeah. uh, he's just endured a breakup. His partner has walked out on him. He's 
somewhat directionless in his life and he's utterly clueless in when it comes to the mysteries of the human heart. Um, he is like me and like you, yep. a record collector, and I think he suffers from the delusion that um, his very complicated relationship with music, his deep connection to it, itself makes him uh, a deep person when in fact he is uh, self-absorbed. Now, I wouldn't go that far because I, like you, really related to the character. In the oh, film. I related to the character, but uh, but he's a child in a man's body with a lot of growing up to do. And by, All right, by that's, the end that's a little the, direct. By the end of the story, I, 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 my take on it is that he's about 5% more advanced <laughs> in his understandings of the complexities of the human heart than he was before. So, it's, it's you know, this is not a particularly flattering portrayal. That said... It is a lovable story and I think that the film made of the book starring John Cusack and Jack Black is actually superior to Nick Hornby's book in many ways. It prunes off some of the fat for one thing uh, and, and also the fact that the film is set in Chicago rather than North London uh, doesn't hurt it at all because yeah. the characters are so well drawn you could meet characters like that in any record shop in the world yeah you know, these kind of you know it, go, it goes deep into the psychology of uh, of music collecting and i think so many of that music collecting tribe of us all around the world we went like you said we saw ourselves in oh, these yeah. people there was that flash of flash of recognition and very awkward <laughs> very awkward recognition as well perhaps and it wasn't until i was reading the pages of your book that i went that's why i love that film so much because at the time, I totally thought he was in the right. Like at the time, and I know, you know, right, wrong, I'm being really flippant with all of this. I'm being very rushed. But it's only now coming back, I go, oh, you're right. He really just needed to grow up. I didn't recognise it like that at the time. You know, I discovered the, the film in my early 20s when I was just, you know, so miserable and so good at being miserable. Yeah, well... Uh, it should be said that the film is, it's a bit of a guy thing. Yeah. Really. yeah. <laughs> it's a great portrait of masculinity and arrested development yeah. as much as anything. And, and uh, Sonic Death Monkeys. It's also about <laughs> Sonic Death Monkeys. Or Kathleen Turner Overdrive, as uh, Jack Black's band was later called. <laughs> um, it, it is a wonderful story, but uh, it's... <laughs> Do you have a top five? It's also about the failty. The, it's also about the... Um, the, the failures, the, fa the emotional failings of, of men, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, but, do but, I have a top five? Yeah. Um, very difficult, but I could certainly isolate a top three or four. Okay, um, with a wandering ten for that last prized position. Look, uh, I, I will start with Marky Moon by Television. I don't know it. I'm going to confess right now. I don't know that record. Great. Go and look it up. You'll, you've got a, a world of discovery in front of you and every, everyone listening to this podcast who might not be familiar with it, the, the, the same applies. I have turned this record onto many dozens of people over the years and if one person listens to it and connects with it, my work, my work here is done. <laughs> um, Raw Power by Iggy and the Stooges. Mm -hmm. Hounds of Love by Kate Bush. Probably Sticky Fingers by The Stones, either that or Beggar's Banquet. 
I tend to switch between those two things by that band. Yep. And uh, maybe Born Sandy Devotional by the Triffords. Now, this is like, it's such an awful question to ask because I couldn't answer it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I could not answer this question. Yep. And my answers would be way less cool than yours. Well, that's all right. I mean, it's uh, what's cool? What is cool? I actually had a conversation about this with Ben Folds in an interview that I did with him a couple of weeks ago. And you know, I, I think uh, Ben calls what he does punk rock for sissies. Yeah. And he's, he was, you know, he, he's a piano player. There aren't many piano players in rock and roll. Mm. Uh, there's Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Elton John, of course, John Cale. All of these guys had to kind of physically punish the piano to sort of <laughs> be on what Ben called team rock. Yeah. Ben was the same. His, his hands are mangled from bashing the keys, bashing his instrument. Wow. And, uh, you know, he's kind of battled with this idea of, uh, you know, being on, being on team rock or not his, his whole career. That's kind of what marks, marks him as an outsider in his field. And he talks about making an album with William Shatner, the actor. And William Shatner just grilling him pinning him on his insecurity really in the recording studio and saying, Ben, Benny, what is cool? No, really, what? What is cool? And uh, it took a while, Ben told me, for the, for the penny to drop. But basically Shatner was trying to get him to let all of that shit go. Wow. And... And... This circles back, I guess, to what we were talking about before, in my view, that there are no guilty pleasures mm. in popular music. What you like is just what you like. I was very hung up on the idea of what was cool for a long time too. But I think one of the... Another fundamental thing that I was trying to get at in something to believe in is that Music, again, whether it's rock and roll, pop, R&B, whatever your poison is, it's, it's a healing force in our lives and it's inclusive. Mm. It's for everybody. And I was attracted to, in my case, punk mainly mm. because it appealed to outsiders. Uh, the catchphrase from the Ramones, Gabba Gabba, we accept you, we accept you, one of us, was really important to me. Mm. Uh, the title, Something to Believe in, by the way, is from the Ramones. Uh, it was, to me, rock and roll was a, was a home for people who felt marginalised in some ways. Even for white suburban boys like me, yeah. which is what I, what I am, I can't really identify as as anything else but like like a lot of people i had a kind of a hard time growing up and so and so music was where i kind of carved out an identity for myself this is a very common story hmm. what what is an outsider then what is an outsider to you like when you say an outsider what do you mean no, by just, that just feeling like you don't fit in in some way. Yeah. That you might have a hard time relating socially to people when you're growing up. The awkwardness of 
adolescence it can become a complex if you let it. I mean, I've got a complex about being an outsider in Queensland because I've written a book about Brisbane, but I don't get published north of the Tweed River. So I kind of feel like an outsider <laughs> here, even though I've been living here for 30 years. Yeah. So... Uh, i got my own Brisbane hang-up, so, you know. I think a lot of people in Brisbane have, have hang-ups <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> We're pausing for you, listener, to decide if you also have one. Join us. Gabba, gabba, gabba. We accept you. <laughs> Yeah, but so, um, is it time for us to wrap up? No, not yet. We've got another, another 12 minutes or so before. You've got a lot of questions there and I realise... No, this is, no this, no, this is all... So what I do is... So we're just talking about my, um, my prep. Uh, and I, what I do is I have lots of sheets of paper and then I have lots of questions and things like that, but I don't necessarily Stick ask them. It. It's more just where a conversation goes yeah yeah well one that i've just seen here as i've got written i am a big wonder pony that's what it's written here this is a phrase that i believe i've just created and it's because i find a lot of things really really interesting and i i find just the idea of something being really wonderful like i go wow isn't that interesting i just like the idea of it um and then what i've got here your book and that feeling I described reminded me again of why we love music, why we love these songs. And just that idea I thought was really lovely to have. So I well, didn't necessarily, yeah, sorry I, to cut you off. I figure that uh, a lot of my favourite music has a sense of wonder to it, something that's almost childlike. Mm. And I think one of the things that I like about this book is that uh, it retains that sense of wonder, even coming from someone who's in, you know, I'm 48 now, born in 1971. So, um, you know, I've retained that fandom. I've met a number of music critics who seem to uh, becoming seem to have become a bit jaundiced with the state of popular music, and I'm not sure how they continue to write about it when it gets to the stage where they start feeling um, jaded in some ways. Yeah. I'm not jaded. And, uh, you know, that's something that I hope I can maintain. If I become jaded, it's probably time to stop. Yeah. What, just on that, what do you think then the state of... What do you mean that the state of music is at the moment? Do you think it's... What do you mean by that? That it's so different to what it was or the oh, type well, of music we're making, the way we make it? Yeah, <laughs> There's a funny joke by Damien Cowell, who used to be in uh, Tism. Uh, his last album with uh, Damien Cowell's Disco Machine, as it's called. There's a song on it about how the main revolutions in uh, popular music these days are in the modes of distribution rather than within the music itself. Yeah. And look, that's, that's true because, uh, you know, the the form of pop music as we know it and rock and roll as we know it well of course it started in the in the 50s with antecedents in blues and folk and country as we know mm. and yeah most of the popular innovations were made in the 60s so i think it's pretty hard to contest that but at the same time that doesn't mean that brilliant music isn't being made right up in the present day, great music is all around us. It's being being made 
uh, in greater volume than ever before. And to that degree, it might be harder to sort the wheat from the chaff and to figure out what's going to last. But, uh, but to people who really love it, I think it means as much as it ever did. It's just as important as it ever was. I really honestly believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as, like you said, as it comes down to it, music is a part of the human experience. That's such a over said thing, but I yeah, think it is because we come back to that's why we love it. It's that's right. I always get irritated with, uh, with people who are hanging on to music from the past and saying that that was, you know, when music really mattered or something like that. Yeah, 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 you totally. Know, it's really snobbish for one thing. Yeah. And conceited. And it denies it denies the experience to those that are younger than them. Yeah. You know. I've got no time for that. Because the music of the time speaks to the time and is made for the time as well, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And Sometimes it's not meant to last any longer than that, you know. There's there's a place for disposable music. Pop music, you know, by its by its very nature, almost by definition, mm. was meant to be disposable. But at its best, it transcends that in spite of itself. Mm. Yeah. And there's something to, going back to what you said about bringing an idea down to something that's really simple. There's something about that. I had a question here. Are you a music or a lyric man? And, uh, and that's, uh, I meant that in jest, you know, that. Well, actually, no, it's, a, it's an interesting and difficult question to answer. I think I'm actually, if I'm honest, I'm actually very lyric driven. Poetry is important to me. Yeah. Um, poetry and pop lyrics are different and yet they're related to one another. And I am always interested in, always interested in words. Um, I punk was very ly- lyric driven as well. Uh, you know, it was about trying to bring music back to street level after a period of psychedelia and progressive rock where things had gotten very cosmic, man, and difficult to relate to. So uh, part of the project of punk was to obliterate the divide between performer and audience and, uh, you know, therefore it it had to be more instantly relatable. The subject matter had to be relatable. The delivery had to be relatable. So... I guess um, I guess from that point of view, I've or coming from that experience, words have always been important to me. I always pay attention to what singers are saying and what their what experience they're trying to get across to us. Mm. Having said that, one of the best musical experiences I've had recently was going to see Aldous Harding, the New Zealand singer songwriter. Mm. Uh, in Sydney, and look, I mean, to try to untangle her lyrics, you might as well wrestle with a Rubik's Cube. Uh, similar to, you know, Bob Dylan in his greatest years from 65, 66, a lot of those songs can mean of what you make them. And I believe there's a vault in a, a bank somewhere that's got a key, and if you use that key like a code and go back to Bob Dylan's songs, you'll, uh, 
you'll be able to decipher something from it. Well, in a sense, <laughs> I wonder if that would be a shame, you know. I yeah, mean, that's I true. Mean, yeah. I mean, we should... I'm joking, by the way. If yes. I think I'm being serious, I was being silly. No, I, I, I did understand that, but, but, in, but in a way, uh, your little joke merits a serious response too in that the mystery of music is something that we should honour mm. in a way because its meaning is very personal to each and every one of us. And even when I'm trying to decode or unlock a particular piece of music and bring to other, bring to readers what I think it's about, you know, um, it might mean something very different to mm. them. They might be getting something entirely other from it than what I'm experiencing in it. And that's good. A lot of songwriters don't like to uh, explain what they're writing, partly because sometimes they're not sure themselves yeah. and partly because they don't want to deny that experience to listeners. Mm. You mentioned, when you mentioned lyrics before, uh, it made me, when you answered that you were a lyric and not a music man, it made me think of... I didn't say that I was not a music man. That's but true. I am, but I am quite... No, I'm, I'm, I'm quite lyric-driven, but... You know, look if the if the music doesn't hold up. That's true, and that's not where I was music, going. You're right. You, if the music yeah. doesn't hold up, the best set of lyrics on earth are not going to save you. If if you have bad music, then yeah. you might as well write poetry. Yeah, yeah. It made me. It actually made me think then of to go full circle. I guess back to to your book, something to to believe in. It made me think of that Neil, you know, the Neil Finn song, Chameleon Days, at the top mm. of the record. Yep, and. And I guess is going back to that as a lovely place to leave people uh, because it's a great entry point into the book and we haven't really gone too deep into a lot of the, 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 the stuff that's in the book that I think is such a joy to find in the book, you know, as you've presented it. Um, but maybe just set up for us, I guess, just that moment without going into too much detail where you, where you heard that song. And to me, I thought of the choir, you know, that you talk about in the book when you were talking then about the music, the, the choir and... Um, yeah. Well, the that song came to me at a particularly difficult point in my life, actually, and I was in a hotel room in Auckland and and um, psychologically not in a stable place, let's say. And I was um, tasked with reviewing Neil's album Out of Silence for The Guardian, and. Uh, I got stuck on the third song on the record, Chameleon Days, and I must have listened to that song 12 or 15 times in a row, maybe. I was yeah. stuck listening to it for an hour, and partly because it's quite a dense piece of music. Yep. The actual hook to the song is simple enough, but it's layered, you know. There are, there's a string arrangement, there's a small choir... There are drums, one of the few uh, songs on that record with a drum track. And in terms of the lyrics, that took a little while to reveal themselves as, as well. But and in fact, I've got some here. It's just I, I, I printed them out just because I, I went back and listened to it. I hadn't heard it. Oh, what have I done? Punching a wall nearly broke my thumb. It's harder than you think. Not that it matters if I show myself to you. Come on, I know you will. That must be how the music is meant to be played. 
a rush of blood, then it's gone as fast as it came, chameleon days. Yeah, uh, the, what I take from that is that life is always changing mm-hmm. and there are going to be things that are beyond our control. The key lines of the song which come in the breakdown are um, anyone can tell you that it's out of your hands, God is rolling numbers while you're making plans. And uh, I guess the message I took from that was about the importance of radical acceptance, Mm. that life is always going to throw you curveballs. Some of them will be very, very challenging. And it's how we then cope with that that defines us and what really matters. And oh, uh, that, fair to say that that was a message that I needed to hear at the time. And for more, I guess, about that, this would be a great time to go and grab the book and have a read because um, the book is in two parts, side A, side B. I'm not going to go into any detail about the reasons for that and the things for that, but interestingly, I read side A, Andrew, when we first started talking about doing this and then I went off on another job and I hadn't read side B and I actually came back in separate parts with a gap in between, which I really, really liked um, that I was able to do that a bit like a record that you found for the first time and, you know, went to bed at the end of the first side and flipped it over the next day. And um, Yeah, the, the, con- the structure of the book was meant to mirror the playing of a record. Strangely enough, I only thought to divide it in, into side A and side B almost, you know, at the last days of the production process, it was like, God damn it, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but you did. But before that, we have, you know, we, we have Dead Wax, which is the introductory section that you've just referred to, a prologue, really. Yep. Dead Wax, of course, being what happens when the needle hits the groove and before you hit the first track. Oh, that's lovely. I hadn't even clocked that. And then fade in, you know, yeah. fade in of the music and the fade out. Uh, f- the fade in is the actual introduction and fade out is the epilogue. And and the fade out left me with beautiful tears in my eyes and I was really moved and just so enjoyed the book. So I can't, you know, recommend go out and read it as quickly as you can. Andrew, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Brad. Cheers. This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life and their careers. Created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit OFM.com. Listener.